Welcome to EM Guidewire, your guide to emergency medicine, brought to you by the residents and faculty from Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Core Concepts of Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to EM Guidewire. I'm Victoria Servin, one of the PGY3s. And I'm Joe Blackwell, also one of the PGY3s here at CMC. And today we're going to be talking to you guys about severe asthma. Back in, I think, 2017, our amazing Dr. Pearson and Dr. Hoagland did a podcast about asthma management in the emergency department. So this is going to kind of serve as a little more in-depth on some of the medications and just an overall update since that time. But I highly suggest checking out their podcast first or even after if you want some repetition because they do offer some great advice. The repetition is key. So Dr. Blackwell, let's say you're working in the pediatric emergency department, your favorite place. Great. And a 17-year-old female arrives by private vehicle. Her mom reports that she's been having severe shortness of breath. She's got a history of asthma, but she left her inhaler at school, and it's now Sunday, so she's been a couple days without. She's been hanging out with her friends all day, but when she came home, her breathing got really bad. So for one, that's going to cause me to start breathing real heavy and getting real nervous, because anytime a sick asthma kid comes in, even if they are 17, it's always a cause for a sphincter tightening moment. Yeah. So let's say you've moved her into a front room, you're hooking her up on the monitor, and the first set of vital signs you get is a temperature of 99.2 oral, blood pressure of 104 over 62. She's a little tachycardic at 122. She's breathing 32 times a minute, but she's saturating pretty well, 97% on room air. You look at this patient, she's pretty anxious appearing. She's got diminished breath sounds bilaterally, pretty shallow respirations. She's got some nasal flaring, and then both subcostal and supraclavicular retractions. And on, for cardiac, you notice she's got a tachycardic rate, regular rhythm, no murmur. All right, so right off the bat, I know that I have some time to sit down and think here. It's going to be fast think, but they're breathing uh, 32 times a minute, so they're not in the 40s. They're satting well on room air, even though they have retractions and diminished breath sounds, that she's at least moving air. So I know that I can sit down and, and think about what my next steps are. Obviously, any time a sick patient comes in the room, it's going to be IV and monitor. So I'm going to start an IV bilateral if I can with my nurses and then get them on the monitor so that I can see, the see make sure this isn't some weird heart rhythm that's causing her her dyspnea, even though I, I'm pretty sure that this is due to an asthma exacerbation, I want to make sure that I'm ruling out other things that I need to worry about. I think capnography is another big thing that I'm going to want to have in the room, and that can really clue me in as to what's going on. Thankfully, we're very fortunate to have our respiratory therapists come to all of these rooms, so I'm going to ask them to get my nebulizer ready with some albuterol and just start them on continuous. And then duoneb is another thing. Add some epitropium, some anticholinergic action in there. Yeah. Any IV medications that you're going to give this patient? Yeah, so your steroids are going to be be a big thing. You know, they're not going to help so much in the immediate, but they're going to help us out down the line in the next hour or so, as well as into the next couple of days to prevent some relapses. I think it's important to note that it's going to take at least two hours to see a difference with the steroids. And so that's definitely not something that you're going to give and expect to start turning your patient around. Right. So thankfully, this is a 17-year-old, so she's basically an adult, so I can use my adult doses. So I'll use 125 of the methylprednisolone. That's going to be my first dose. And then if it's dexamethasone, I'll probably start with 10. I think keeping in mind our pediatric doses, if you have our, our younger kiddos with the dexamethasone, it's going to be 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. I 
pretty much exclusively use dexamethasone now. I like that you don't have to continue. Like if this patient does turn around, probably unlikely with the way she presented, but if she does and we send her home, I don't have to give her a prednisone taper to go home with. That being said, patients will almost always have a dose of methylpred if EMS brings them in, yeah. which is totally fine. Yeah, absolutely. And then obviously this patient is in the moderate to severe category of asthma. So mag is something else that I'm going to reach into my back pocket for that's going to be a, a quick and easy. Just give them two doses, let it go in slow. But also keep in mind this patient's blood pressure initially seems okay. It was 104 systolic, but keeping in mind that mag is also going to be a vasodilator. So if they're hypotensive, you're going to want to try to avoid that, especially in our adult population. And then I usually give, I'm not huge on giving IV fluids, but this is one case where I'd go ahead and give a bolus. She's <laughs> probably going to have a lot of insensible losses with her tachypnea. And in case things go really poorly and you do end up needing to intubate this patient, you're going to want to make sure she has an adequate preload. Awesome. Dr. Sherman, you want to talk about some albuterol dosing for these patients? Yeah, this is definitely something when I was an intern and RT looked at me and asked what type of or what dose of albuterol I wanted. I was like, you know, the normal, <laughs> <laughs> the dose that it comes in, whatever your protocol is, RT. <laughs> <laughs> what dose do you want? <laughs> <laughs> the classic way of saying, I don't know. What do you want to do? While um, always sounding smart. So now I know, because I'm a third year, that if the patient is 5 to 10 kilograms, I'm going to give them 10 megs per hour. If they are 10 to 20 kilograms, I'm going to give them 15 megs per hour. And if they're greater than 20 kilograms, I'm going to give them 20 megs per hour with a max dose of up to 30 megs per kg. And then if you are giving a duo neb, you're going to give 1.5 milligrams inhaled over the first hour, and then repeat doses will be 0.5 milligrams every four to six hours. And they usually recommend for a severe asthmatic giving two to three doses of this medication. Awesome. So like I said earlier, getting the patient hooked up to the monitor, obviously this patient has a history of asthma, has been out of their inhaler, so I have a great idea as to what is actually going on, but I can't anchor on that. So some other diagnoses or diagnoses that I'm going to consider are going to be things like heart failure, anaphylaxis, if they have a peanut allergy and they were at a friend's house and accidentally had peanut butter. Aspiration is another big one that, that you don't always think about, but it's something to, to worry. Especially in your pediatric patients that can't talk to you, you know, all of your toddlers that are running around putting things in their mouth. Absolutely. Hopefully not happening too much in the pediatric land, but PE uh, is another thing uh, to keep in the back of your mind. And then hyperventilation syndrome and pneumothorax can also cause some altered breath sounds and patients coming in and extremists looking like asthma that aren't. And then one of the biggest mimics I think that can occur at any age is vocal cord dysfunction. Yep. And so oftentimes patients will come in, the few times that I've seen this, they're coming in and EMS is telling me that they're having an asthma attack. They've been treated throughout their transport as an asthma attack. And then I get in and they don't really fit all the signs or symptoms of asthma. And they end up getting the diagnosis of vocal cord dysfunction. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important too that thankfully our pre-hospital providers have all the tools in their in their toolbox to be able to treat an asthma exacerbation. And if a patient comes in after getting all these treatments, they've been on continuous, been given steroids, all and, and even mag, they have carry that, and most pre-hospital services will carry that. And they're still wheezing. You got to start, start thinking about other diagnoses. So if a patient's not starting to look at least a little bit better by the time that they get there, depending on your transport times, you might want to start thinking of other things. Yeah. And luckily, most of those treatments for asthma in the long term are pretty benign. So it never hurts to go ahead and keep treating them for asthma while you're working up the rest of your differential, except for in the case of maybe aortic stenosis. 
they don't tend to tolerate tachycardia well. So we're going to kind of go into some more of the medications that we had just talked about. I know kind of a controversial one, but an ED favorite is magnesium. I love mag. It's one of my favorite drugs to use, especially in these patients. It's been shown to improve pulmonary function and decrease the rate of hospital admissions in some patients, but it's most often used in those with severe symptoms. Obviously, it's hard to know the true benefit in our critically ill asthmatics because we're throwing the kitchen sink at them and it's hard to really study this population just given how sick that they truly are. Yeah, um, most of the studies done on magnesium are patients more in the moderate category. And those who have included some severe patients, like Joe said, the greatest benefit was seen in the sickest patients. So we can't say for sure that it helps, but all the literature kind of points in that direction. And we will include in the show notes several of the studies that we kind of briefly gloss over in this talk today. So you can take a look at it for yourself. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think it's also important, like you said earlier, it's a pretty benign drug outside of some some vasodilatation. So if you have a patient, typically the patients that I've seen that are in severe asthma exacerbations are usually hypertensive. So if anything, it's going to help them. And talking about the dosing for these, we already talked about it a little bit, but giving your two grams in your adult population is going to be kind of my go-to. It's a quick think number that, you know, I'm a simple ED doc. I can remember that pretty easily. I think it's important to mention that nebulized magnesium has really not been shown to improve function and you got to give it IV. So making sure that you have good access when they, when they roll in the door is going to be big. There have been a couple studies that looked at infusion versus bolus magnesium in these patients, and it's been shown that bolus works works better, and you give it over an hour. So in our adult population, I'm going to usually just reach for two grams, but our pediatric population, when you're having to do a little bit little bit more math, it's 50 milligrams per kilogram given over one hour. So getting your Braslow tape out, or if you have a weighted bed, can be helpful, helpful to give the correct dose. And one important thing to note is people don't often consider rebolusing these patients, but that has been shown to help. For sure. So some of the other drugs that I, full disclosure, haven't used in the emergency department, but aminophilin is a combination drug between theophylin and ethyldiamine. It's used for reversible airway obstructions, but it also has many other uses. Including thigh cellulite cream. Oh, that's nice. This medicine is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, also an adenosine receptor antagonist, and a histone deacetylase activator. So lots of big words there. I'm having flashbacks to first year of medical school, and they're not fond memories. So, Dr. Servant, like I said, I haven't used this in the emergency department. So what's going to be your dose for this in the patients that you've used it on? I have been asked to use this medication, but didn't end up giving it. If you are asked to give it, you can start with a 6 mg per kg loading dose, and then a maintenance dose of 0.5 to 1 mg per kg per hour. And the recommended starting dose for kids 1 to 9 years old is that 1 mg per kg per hour, and then for kids 10 to 16, you're actually going to start a little bit lower at 0.8 mg per kg per hour. The reason probably neither one of us has given this medication, <laughs> and I chose not to give it when I was asked to, is that it has a very narrow therapeutic index and a very wide range of adverse side effects. So I think theophylline is probably one that we studied a little bit more in medical school. And caffeine, its neighbor, is something that we used a lot in medical school. Mm. So just kind of think of caffeine toxicity with this medication. In a Cochrane review in 2012, found that this drug did not do significantly better than any other bronchodilator. And with that very narrow therapeutic range and wide array of adverse side effects, why would you use this medicine if it's no better than anything else? 
So Heliox is kind of a big, sexy thing now to, to talk about. It's also something that I haven't used yet, but it's something that I think is really interesting and, and something when my next pediatric patient comes in and is super sick that I might reach for. It's a mixture of oxygen and helium at a ratio of 70-30 or 80-20, and it produces a gas that is less dense than air. What it basically does, getting into the, the physics behind it, is it's essentially the helium replaces the nitrogen in the air, thus making it less dense. It's thought to help patients who are suffering from conditions that result in increased airway resistance, so asthma, croup, any type of upper airway mass. There's going to be turbulent flow in these patients, which results in increased work of breathing. So if you give them that less dense gas, it's going to reduce the airway resistance, increasing laminar flow, and decreasing work of breathing. So I think it's also important to keep in mind that this is a really expensive mixture of air, and it's contraindicated in patients that are hypoxemic because you can't increase the FiO2. So going back to our original case, this patient was 97% on room air. So this would be something that we could reach for if our initial therapies weren't working. As I said, this is a a new big sexy drug. So there haven't been a lot of prospective RCTs to support its use. So something to look out for in future literature. And it doesn't treat the underlying pathophysiology. So you're really just putting a band-aid on these patients until you can get the bronchodilators and everything else working and get those steroids working. So in general, there's kind of mixed thoughts on this medication, but it can be helpful in certain patient populations. I've definitely seen it used for croup in the past, so maybe sure. it's something we should be considering in our, like you said, non-hypoxic asthmatic patients. Yeah. All right, Dr. Servin, now that we've kind of talked about all of our options and everything that we can use to reverse these patients, let's have the same patient come in, same HPI, 17-year-old, hasn't taken her meds, but she looks a, a, a little bit sicker. She's still afebrile, her pressure's the same, but now she's tacky in the 140s, she's breathing 50 times a minute, and her SAT with EMS was like, 95. Now it's down to 92, and you start to see it trend down with a great pleth. She's agitated. She's not cooperating. She's you know moving around. The non-rebreather is not comfortable. She's flinging that around. Her skin is cool, and when you go to put your stethoscope on her chest, you don't hear a daggum thing. Her cardiac exam is fast but regular. You don't. I don't know that I've ever heard a murmur, but you don't hear it here. I believe that heart sounds are better seen than not heard. So this patient definitely sicker than the one we first talked about. So we're going to kind of start by doing a lot of the same things. I'm going to place her on capnography, give her an albuterol treatment, make sure that it's continuous at the proper dosing. This patient, I'm going to give some supplemental O2. Definitely going to want to make sure that we get IV access. I'd say this is a patient that's sick enough that I'm going to tell my nurses on both arms, you get two shots and then we're drilling an IO. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. And it's not something that we think about as often, but IO, even though it's not, it seems barbaric, but it's a great way to give meds in a, in a patient that's in asthmaticus and is an, ex, an extremis. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely giving those IV steroids, magnesium, and fluids, but I think this patient is sick enough and... Her absent breath sounds scare me enough that I'm also going to reach for some epinephrine. Ooh, epi. Yeah. So if we're still struggling for access, you can always give epinephrine IM the same way you would for anaphylaxis. But if our stellar nurses get quick IV access, I'm probably going to go ahead and start her on an epi drip. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I'm going to probably start this patient on a little bit lower dose than I would for my typical like heart failure. I need to increase inotropy. And I'm going to keep her lower down at more to three to five micrograms per minute. And then you can also, if you don't have an epi drip available, make a small batch of push dose epi, which we've talked about in previous podcasts, and just give her a little one mil aliquots of that. Love it. And as with all of our sick respiratory patients, we're going to have RT at bedside if you have that at your hospital. With epinephrine, I think 
some people in the room might bring up that our patient is already pretty tachycardic and that epinephrine can worsen that. I'd say in this case, I would go ahead and take that risk. If she can't breathe, I think that's probably what's driving her underlying tachycardia. And so putting in a systemic beta agonist to open up her airways will help treat the underlying pathology and hopefully, therefore, improve her tachycardia. Yep, I completely agree. You know, this patient is on the verge of crumping real hard, and they're obviously an extremist. So I think it's always safer to reach for medicines that don't have the best side effect profile but can prevent our patient from coding. Yeah, and I'd say this is a case, this patient's not moving any air at all, and I'd be worried that even though I put her on albuterol, that's not getting down to her lower airway. Yeah. And so I think this is definitely appropriate to use a systemic beta agonist. One more thing that I want to mention really quick, we've talked about putting the patient on capnography a couple of times, and so I think we should just kind of address really quick why we do that and what we we're looking for. Yeah, so this is something that on our nasal cannulas, that they can have a different adapter or you can have your own entitled CO2 monitor. Our normal range is going to be anywhere from 35 to 45. I think this is something that should be utilized in every sick patient that you have, regardless of etiology, because it can clue you in as to a lot of different different pathologies and really give you kind of a, a sixth vital sign or a fifth, a fifth vital sign. So... In asthmatics, capnography will be diminished because they're not moving air. They're not getting things out. And you'll also want to look for changes in the waveform. Different pathologies produce different waveforms on capnography. And in the case of asthmatics, you're going to look for a shark fin or kind of a wave shape. So typically in a healthy patient, if we were to throw capnography on Joseph, he would have a box shape. And so the first part of the box is phase one, and then you hit phase two and then phase three. In asthmatics, the upslope is kind of blunted, and that slope represents a change in phase two. And that's the expiratory stroke. And that sharp incline is produced when CO2 levels increase dramatically. So speaking of kind of airway management, I know that we are going to have all of our equipment at bedside. RT is there, but I don't know about you, Dr. Servin, but if I have a patient that is crumping, that has a history of asthma, I'm going to be really, really scared to intubate this patient. So what are going to be kind of our bridging steps to before we have to really pull the trigger and sling some plastic? Yeah. One of our greatest tools in emergency medicine is non-invasive ventilation. And I think we can definitely use it in this case. By putting them on non-invasive, what we're hoping to do is decrease Increase their work of breathing, which will allow them to take in larger tidal volumes. Yeah, so the mechanism of this in status asthmaticus seems to be based on the bronchodilator effect, which is going to induce alveolar recruitment. So using PEEP through our non-invasive helps to overcome the patient's intrinsic PEEP, which is going to result in more bronchodilation, which is going to increase airflow, which is going to lead to re-expansion of areas that have been previously collapsed with atelectasis and improve our VQ mismatch and thus decrease our work of breathing. So the inspiratory positive airway pressure can help unload some of the work of accessory muscle use and increase our tidal volumes. Exactly, Joe. So this may improve the distribution of aerosolized meds to the deep portion of the airway, thusly treating our underlying pathology. And overall, the goal of BiPAP is to stave off intubation. But if it doesn't work, you're already pre-oxygenating the patient. So as long as you can keep the BiPAP mask on the patient, there's really no downside to this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like I said earlier, these are not patients that you're going to reach for intubation first. Intubation is going to be a last-ditch effort to try and get this patient from, from coding. Yeah. One of our former... Talks fellows who's moved on to be an attending elsewhere gave me a great lecture on BiPAP. And so he emphasized to remember that PEEP and FiO2 will help increase your oxygenation while pressure support will help you ventilate. And to maximize inspiratory support, you're really going to want to kind of manipulate your PEEP and inspiratory pressures. So inspiratory pressures should start around seven to eight, but you can slowly titrate up to 15. You're going to want to start your PEEP 
low at three to five. And you kind of want to, we always worry about auto peep in these patients. So you want to give them just enough peep to match their auto peep. And if you take their EPAP or PEEP plus pressure support, that's going to equal their IPAP. And you want to make sure that their IPAP level stays less than 20 to 25, because once you get greater than that, the pressure can overcome the lower esophageal sphincter, leading to gastric insufflation. And then what happens, Joe? And then they're just going to upchuck everywhere, and it's going to be awful. Yeah. So we'd like that lower esophageal sphincter to stay closed. So make sure when you're looking at your EPAP, plus your PEEP, it stays under 20 to 25. And these patients are also going to want to crank up your inspiratory flow rate and lower your I to E ratio. If you're used to doing like a one to two, maybe try one to five in these patients to produce a prolonged expiratory phase to allow the patients to fully exhale and get some of that excess air out of their lungs that's being trapped by their bronchoconstriction. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is also lowering your I to E ratio, making it one to five or even more than that is is the body's way of blowing off all that excess CO2. So you're going to improve their acidosis and, and really help clear up any derangement and mental status that they may have had. So keeping that in, in the back of your mind as far as what, what steps you can do to, to help stave off intubation is huge. One important thing to keep in mind with these asthmatics is part of the reason they're struggling to breathe is because of their disease process. And part of it probably has a large anxiety component. If you feel like you're being suffocated, you're going to start to panic a little bit more and that's going to cause you to breathe faster. So one of our hopes with placing a patient on non-invasive is to kind of help them decrease their work of breathing, reduce their anxiety. And then hopefully once they've been placed on BiPAP and they kind of chill out a little bit, they'll be pulling larger tidal volumes. And so ideally, once you've got the patient calm, giving them a little bit of time to settle out and you check your settings, they should be pulling around five cc's per kilogram of ideal body weight for their tidal volume. Yeah, and, and the, the freaking out part is something that I think is underestimated a lot in these patients. And I, I've always been one to not be afraid to reach for some sort of anxiolysis that's not going to reduce your respiratory drive. So benzos are probably not going to be your best bet in these patients, but ketamine, I think, is a great adjunct that we have, and you can just give little aliquots to kind of calm them down a little bit. Yeah, I would actually advocate for dissociative dosing in these patients. It's usually kind of frowned upon when we're using non-invasive, but that's because typically... In- Like if my COPD or someone that I'm not worried about tubing right away, I might give them a little touch of ketamine and then go see some other patients, come back and check on them. And my severe agitated asthmatic, I'm probably not going to be leaving that room if I'm worried about tubing them. So I can go ahead and give them a dissociative dose because I'm going to be in the room watching them, making sure that they're not vomiting, making sure that nothing is going wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And and making sure you have all of your airway equipment ready because this could turn into a delayed sequence intubation if they don't calm down with the ketamine. Yeah. And it's important to note that this is one of our medicines. Like you said, we don't want to use benzos. We don't want to use opioids for the same reason because those are both going to depress our respiratory drive and ketamine won't do that. Exactly. Um, One of the many reasons I love ketamine. There is some talk that it has a bronchodilatory effect in large doses, but that's never actually been proven. It's more of a theoretical thing. And then it's been studied and never been shown to kind of change the morbidity or mortality of asthmatic patients. So don't rely on that. Exactly. So Joe, if you don't have ketamine or you're not a believer or you just want to try something different today, what's another medicine that we're often using on our BiPAP patients? Well, I think first 
first things first, if I don't have ketamine in my ED, I'm going to need to talk to any leadership because it is something that it can be used for so many different things. So for all of the people out there that don't have it, I think it's kind of cats out of the bag on ketamine and how awesome it is. So make sure that we have that at your disposal. So if if you're going to be reaching for something and you don't want to use ketamine, I think dexmedetomidine or Presidex is another good thing to use. It's something that I'm going to start slow. So start at 0.4 and titrate up as needed. However, these patients are so agitated that I may want to do the opposite and start high and titrate down to effect. Now, dexmedetomidine can cause some bradycardia. So this can kind of help with our patients that are freaking out and help with that heart rate. Its mechanism is going to be an alpha-2 antagonist and relax the smooth muscle, which can also directly improve our patient's condition. So in general, when comparing the two, I think I'm going to use dex when I have a patient who's doing okay, but maybe needs a little help relaxing. I've had several patients who I put the BiPAP machine on them. They're sitting there, they're tolerating it, but their eyes are screaming at me. Um, So I'm going to give that patient some dex. Whereas ketamine, if I've got the patient who I really want to be on BiPAP, but they're like trying to punch my nurses and punch RT who's putting it on their face, that patient I'll probably give some ketamine. And then like Joe said, if I'm at all worried that I'm going to be intubating this patient in the near future, I'm totally cool with using dissociative doses of ketamine and using that as delayed sequence intubation if necessary, but hopefully as a way of staving off intubation because now they're going to tolerate my non-invasive. All right, Dr. Servin, we've kind of done everything we can in this hypothetical patient. We've given them albuterol. We've given them epitropium. We've done mag. We talked to our intensivist that said, have you thought of aminophilin? And we've said, yes, and we're not doing it. They're on BiPAP and they're still satting at like 88% and now they're starting to look worse and they're starting to tire out. So we're starting to think that it's time to slow sling some plastic, uh, unfortunately, in this patient. So you want to kind of talk about how you're going to get ready to do this and and also why we've kind of been advocating for not thus far. Mm -hmm. So these patients are sick. These patients are barely hanging on and they're trying to compensate as best they can. Chances are they're acidotic. Chances are they're volume down, preload down. So there's a lot of badness working against you if you were to go tube this patient. So that's why we like to avoid it. There are a couple things to keep in mind if you're going to end up having to intubate these patients. And I think it starts with your pre-intubation prep work. Just like with any patient, you're gonna wanna make sure you have a fresh set of vital signs, you've addressed any hypotension, either with IV fluids or if necessary, starting them on pressors. My usual go-to pressor if I need it pre-intubation is Levo. But in this patient, I've probably already started them on an epinephrine drip. Sure. And so I can maybe just titrate that up. Yep. But also if a asthmatic patient is peri crash, they might become bradycardic. And so that's definitely a sign of badness in any sick patient. And the epi can also maybe assist with that. Yep, absolutely. And I think other things to to think about is, you know, this is a great delayed sequence intubation patient. So we've already given the ketamine, we've given them a chance to, to mellow out, and it's really just not working. So our next step is going to be to paralyze this patient. Obviously, you have your two routes of depolarizing versus non-depolarizing. I'm going to reach for my rock because I want something to last longer. I'm not looking to get a neuro exam later. And this person is probably not going to come off the vent anytime soon. So I think rock is a great thing. And it's going to really give you complete control over their respiratory mechanics. So they're not going to be bucking the vent. They're not going to be fighting you. It'll give them time to settle out while you're optimizing their vent settings. Exactly. And I'm going to use as large of a tube as I can because this patient already has a ton of airway resistance. I don't want to cause any more problems. I can think of nothing worse than an asthmatic trying to breathe through a coffee straw. Yeah. I think this would be a great time to use your bougie. You get your bougie in place. You try and put as big of a tube as you can through their cords. And maybe you got a little aggressive and you have to downsize by half a size. Your bougie's in place and you're not wasting time in this crashing patient kind of trying to 
reinsert a piece of plastic. Yep, absolutely. This is, you know, as our, our fearless leader, Dr. Gibbs, has said so many times, first pass success in this patient that's going to have absolutely zero reserve is going to be huge. So I love using a bougie and making sure that your first first look is going to be your only look and making sure that you can get the get this patient on the ventilator as fast as possible. Another important thing to note, if you are having to use BVM for your pre-oxygenation, or if you are having to take a second look, make sure to let your RT know that you want to keep their respiratory rate slow. The high eye to eat ratio that we talked about on BiPAP, mimic that with your back valve masking. So tell RT to keep them at a rate of like 10 to 12. Okay, so we've intubated the patient. They're on the ventilator. They're paralyzed. You look up and our next pressure is 80 systolic. And we start to wonder, well, what the heck? Why is this the case? I don't love acronyms, but I think this is one that you really can be beneficial. And it's S-H-I-T. You can take that, what you think. Uh, and it stands for stacking, so hyperventilation. You obviously don't want to be doing that in this, these patients. Hypovolemia, which hopefully we have addressed prior to intubation with a nice slug of fluids. Our induction drugs can certainly cause some degree of hypotension. And then the other kind of big scary thing is attention in the thorax. So I think having your stethoscope ready is helpful, but I think having an ultrasound in the room to throw on and see some lung sliding, do a quick rush exam can be super helpful in, in these patients. Yeah. Two key things that I would do if the patient coded after intubation or coded after I've to them, maybe walked away, gone back and checked on them, is I'm going to unplug them from the ventilator, pop the tube off, maybe press on their chest, see if I can get any air out. And then I'm probably going to reach to do bilateral finger thoracostomies yep. just to address some of those parts of the SIHT mnemonic pretty quickly. We just have to make sure that we put the viral filter on because COVID. That's true. And so one kind of overlooked thing, especially in the emergency department, at least where we are, RT is so good at managing the vent after we've tube a patient that sometimes we just walk away. Yep. This is not a patient that you want to walk away and just leave them on the normal vent settings because that will kill your patient that you just work so hard to save. So like we talked about with bagging the patient, you want to keep their respiratory rate low, 10 to 12. Just like with BiPAP, you want to have an inspiratory time of about one second and then an inspiratory pressure of about 40 centimeters to start with a PEEP of five. You want to keep their tidal volume six to eight cc's per kg of ideal body weight, which is important to remember anytime you're trying to set tidal volume, you're using their ideal body weight. And then we typically do this with all of our vents. We start at 100% FiO2 and then titrate down quickly. In these patients, it's not really an oxygenation problem, so you should be able to titrate down their FiO2 pretty quickly. Yep. And then something else that you can think of is allowing for some permissive hypercapnia. But if you're going to do this, you want to make sure you're monitoring the pH closely. These are patients that are intubated. So RT or you can start getting some ABGs. And I'm usually checking my ABGs every 30 minutes to see how we're, how we're progressing. Yeah. Pumping up their PEEP to make their CO2 levels within normal limits is not going to help them. And that can cause some barotrauma. And at this point, as long as they're maintaining an adequate pH, you're really not worried about the hypercapnia suppressing their respiratory drive because because they're tubed. Yep. One quick trick that we often talk about in the MICU, but not so much in the emergency department that you're going to want to check after you've intubated these patients is a plateau pressure. And so this isn't an automatic reading that you're going to see on your vent. What you're actually going to see is a reported as a peak pressure, and you have to perform an inspiratory pause to get their plateau pressure. So the buttons are going to be a little bit different on each vent, so figure it out at your institution. But if you do that plateau pressure or you do the inspiratory pause to get your plateau pressure, anything above 30 is bad. 
Yeah, so this is going to represent the pressure that is applied by the mechanical ventilator to the small airways in the alveoli. And when you have these higher plateau pressures that are over 30, then you're going to lead to higher risks of barotrauma. And those high plateau pressures represent poor lung compliance. And so a couple things that you can do to reduce your plateau pressure is to decrease your tidal volume, decrease your PEEP, decrease your flow, and increase the patient's sedation or paralytics to make them kind of more compliant. Yeah, I have a very low threshold to paralyze my asthmatics just because I want to have complete control over their ventilatory settings. So you don't want them bucking the vent or kind of trying to breathe over it. And one last thing about these sick patients, we've been mostly referring to adult patients today. And I think in the adult world, we're pretty comfortable with non-invasive and doing all these steps. But there have been a couple studies that have shown that non-invasive and pediatric patients is safe and effective. So if you want to follow that same algorithm of sick pediatric patient, non-invasive, hopefully save off intubation, and then your steps to intubation aren't going to be very different aside from your dosing of medications. For sure. All right, Dr. Servan, we've covered a lot in this this talk about asthma. So let's just give a quick summary of the patient that you come in is, is sick. We're going to make sure we have IV access. If not, we're going to reach for our IO in these patients, get them on some supplemental oxygen, put them on the monitor, and get RT in the room if you have it. Also, quick think, start some NEBS, do duonebs, continuous albuterol, and giving a peripheral beta agonist is also going to be helpful in these patients. Epi is easy to come by. It should be in every ED, and you can do it IM if you need to. Next is going to be our steroids, giving those IV and then magnesium is something that I love to use in the ED. We talked about non-invasive ventilation, quickly being able to turn around a patient, and then we talked about the agitation that usually comes with these patients that are hypoxic and struggling to breathe, so trying to get control of that with ketamine or dexmedetomidine. Yep, and if you do have to intubate the patient, make sure you're optimizing their pre-intubation hemodynamics and be ready to code them right after you get that plastic through the cords. If they do code either right after you intubate them or after a minute on the ventilator, remember your SHIT mnemonic. I, for one, am going to unplug them from the vent immediately, press on their chest, and do bilateral finger thoracostomies. Um, One thing that we didn't mention that I think is important anytime you're considering intubating a patient is I'm calling my ECMO team right away. I'm going to let them know, hey, I've got a really sick asthmatic patient. Be prepared. I might be calling you in a minute. Start getting your resources together. Yep. Once they're on the vent, make sure that you're setting a low respiratory rate, a prolonged I to E time, start with a PEEP of five and a normal tidal volume of the six to eight cc's per kg of ideal body weight. You can adjust the tidal volume, PEEP, flow, and paralytics as needed to maintain a plateau pressure less than 30. And if you've done all that, hopefully your ICU is impressed, your patient is improving, and I think you've done pretty good work for the day. I think so. (laughs) Cool. Well, thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to EM Guidewire. Go be awesome today. CMC out.